Mr. Billy Walker, welcome to the show, sir. Amazing to have you on. Thank you so much for your time today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, listeners, to set the scene today, I've driven all of five minutes from my house to the wonderful Glenallachie Distillery here in the heart of Speyside. Uh, we are sitting in this amazing office at the distillery. Um, and, Billy, before we, we get into how you got into owning this amazing distillery, I want to rewind a little bit here and dig into this incredible journey within the whiskey world that you've had. Unfortunately, my co-host, Nicholas Palaki, can't be here today, um, but I believe you're both Dunbarton boys. Yes, we're uh, both Dunbarton boys. Yeah, yeah. So I know there's a lot of whiskey around there. So your upbringing, was that kind of based around about whiskey? Did you get into it at that point in time? Well, quite early. I mean, I, I by profession, I'm a chemist. I, I studied at Glasgow University. Um, but coming from a whiskey town, which was... Certainly, the spiritual home of Hiram Walker, Scotch whisky. But I mean, you also had J and B, who had a significant presence there, and indeed a bottling plant. But there was also a number of uh, other smaller companies, McGavigans and Bon Hill. Um, there was Newton Bond. So there was there's a lot of whisky activity going on in the town, and there was almost an inevitability that uh, at some point um, I would either be attracted to it or be invited to be part of it. Um, and I, I spent uh, you know, five years doing uh, research and pharmaceutical research, which I enjoyed enormously, but I, it, as I say, it was inevitable that I would be attracted to, uh, to the whiskey side uh, of things, uh, basically because of my upbringing. And so I joined, uh, joined Hiram Walker Ballantines, uh, was my first venture into it, and a fantastic company. Um, and at a time when there was much less consolidation in the industry, so there were a lot of uh, private companies. Um, and Hiram Walker gave me a fantastic opportunity to learn, really to learn the ropes and, um, frankly, to get involved in all aspects of the industry. And then, of course, I was attracted into the, the blending side. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming going back to when you were a pharmaceutical research chemist, that kind of helped with, with that or...? Yes, it, it has helped, and uh, it has never failed to help. Um, but if you had to ask me, um, is it uh, chemistry or alchemy or instinct, I would have to go in terms of um, my experience would suggest that go with your instinct always. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, but love that. The chemistry knowledge is quite important. It, uh, it explains quite a lot of things. Yeah. And it sets you off, it also gives you, uh, it challenges you to go off in certain directions in terms of some of the things you're looking for. And a lot of that is wrapped into what we do in terms of uh, uh, distillation style, cut, length of fermentation, and indeed then it falls on into the, the kind of what we do in terms of the maturation process, what we start it off in, how long we give it in this style of wood before we move it into another style of wood. And all, much of that, although it's instinct and it's experience, there is a very sound chemistry grounding behind all of that. I think that's it's interesting you say that because when I'm chatting to people about Scotch whiskey, a lot of the things that I, well, a lot of the times I say to them, you know, science can't explain absolutely everything to do with, with Scotch whiskey. And I love that. I love the fact that, you, you know, you're saying that that instinct comes in there and, and you can't explain everything that happens in a cask, for example. I think it's too tedious to try and even explain it through the chemistry. But the reality is that... Um, 
as you go along, you you know the style of wood you want, you know the genus of the wood, the origin of the wood, you know the level of toasting, the degree of charring, and what that contributes. Now, there's a huge, there is huge science and chemistry behind all of that, but the greatest teacher of all is the experience you've had in following the development of these various styles of cask, various uh, styles of oak wood and genus. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So I want to rewind a little bit because, I mean, you've got such an interesting journey within the whiskey industry. I want to rewind to September 2004, I think it was, when you opened up Ben Rear. Yeah. So you opened up a mothballed distillery. I mean, to walk us through that. Was there a, quite a few sleepless nights, I'm assuming, before that? No, interestingly, that, that, was, that wasn't the concern. Um, and it's also interesting. It's a good point to start uh, this journey and even to talk about uh, where single malt whiskey is now compared to where it was in 2003, 2004. When I started the conversation with Chevis, who I have to say were terrific people to deal with and have over a number of uh, decades have been just good people to deal with. Uh, they they recognise safe hands. They are great custodians of the industry, along with Diageo. Um, but at the time we, when we were first started, opened the conversation, it was, what would you like to buy? You know, there was something like uh, 16 or 17, maybe more, single malt distillers either closed or mothballed um, at that mm -hmm. time. So... It kind of, yeah, I mean, it, opening Ben Rieck, recommissioning Ben Rieck was a challenge in itself, but we were comfortable that we could do it. But most importantly, we, we had a long discussion about uh, the kind of inventory profile we were going to inherit, and that was the most important thing of all, mm. actually getting the facility up and running and commissioning to our kind of uh, style and uh, quality. It wasn't all that difficult, frankly. Um, in this area, there's a lot of clever people, good, there's good tradespeople up there, there's good hands-on people, good engineers. Um, so, we, you know, we, we, and there were people who wanted to help. Um, mm -hmm. um, and indeed, uh, Chevis were very helpful in the whole process, process of recommissioning uh, Ben Riech. But it was exciting. I have to say, it was a very exciting period. Um, anxiety. It wasn't anxiety in terms of fear. It was anxiety in making sure that we didn't disappoint uh, and we didn't actually compromise the standards that we were trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. yeah, fantastic. I, I, can, I can't imagine how exciting it must have been seeing that first bit of new make gone no, through the stills. It, it was brilliant. And, but we were, we were fortunate in a sense that while it was a recommissioning and it was a restart-up, um, we knew that we had inventory in place and good inventory that we could bring to the market quite quickly. So the challenges in terms of financing the operation were pretty well balanced. It was a good equilibrium. We were, you know, we were producing stuff, but we had mature inventory that would uh, that would allow us to generate cash and bring mm -hmm. product relatively quickly to the market. Fantastic. And then following on from that, you opened Glendronic and, and Glenglassic, as most people listening will know, um, and then. You went on in 2017, I think it was, you, you sold that all, all three of them off to Brian Foreman. Was that always the plan or did that just sort of naturally happen? No, it wasn't the plan. Uh, <laughs> there were other plans. Uh, look, it happened. And on reflection, I mean, at the time I was not uh, um, a willing seller, but my, t my two partners were fantastic partners, South African uh, guys. Um, 
they were they were quite keen to sell their situations in Africa generally um, had changed a little bit so um, they were quite keen to sell and, and to be honest they had been such good partners um, while um, I felt there was significant unfinished business with all three of the distilleries it was the right thing to do for them and you know in hindsight it was maybe the right thing to do full stop because just maybe the whole operation was getting too big um, for our mentality. It was certainly getting big. Um, the the Lindronic in particular was uh, was beginning to go out of sight. It was it was charging ahead. I think my biggest disappointment in all of that uh, was that we never really got a chance to showcase Glenglasic, which we had done some fantastic work at Glenglasic, not just in taking it on from. Stuart Nickerson, who did a terrific job, I have to say. Stuart uh, worked with a very low budget. And he did a real good job uh, taking the distillery to where to the point where we, we, we acquired it. But we did some wonderful management in there. It's mm. still to still to hit the shelves. I mean, as you did with the, with the other two distilleries as well. I'm, yeah, I'm we a did. Big fan of them. We spent a lot of work uh, making sure that uh, we we. Uh, put our fingerprint on the, on these facilities, particularly in terms of the wood management. So I'm interested, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when it's a Billy Walker sit-down conversation about buying a distillery. How, how, how does that look? Can I walk, I mean, I suppose every scenario is going to be different in your experience. Look, I think, I think um, I had some advantages. We, we, you always have to have some money and you, you always have to get the bank behind you. Um, when we sold off... Um, when Burn Stewart was sold to Angostura, I kind of realised some cash, and that kind of was the start of the journey. Once we had sold the, 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 the kind of collective Ben Reich business, the three distilleries, it gave us some cash to play with. And, you know, money is it's a useful tool, but it's no more than that. Um, but when we sold anyway, it, it was a casual conversation with um, the uh, the one of the senior directors of Chivas, uh, uh, Christian Porter, uh, about what about buying, could we buy another distillery? And he said, yeah, you probably, Lynn Alec is a possibility, but you know, it's not a gimme, you're in the queue. Um, and so we pursued that quite vigorously. I knew this facility quite well, you know, mm. it, and it fitted our template perfectly. It was understated, it was under the radar, it had never really been allowed to showcase itself in the marketplace. So it was a blank sheet. It allowed us to look at the inventory we inherited. Um, what is the plan for this? What is the DNA of this, uh, of this facility? And how do, you, how do we want to redefine this DNA going forward? Um, and we've worked hard over the last five and a half, six years now. Um, it was always our intention that... Uh, Sherry style would be would play a very important part, but not the only things that we would do on site. We would do a lot of interesting releases, particularly focusing on things like uh, Virgin Oak, which was it really had not been all that significant in the whole of the industry, primarily because these casks are very expensive. Mm -hmm. So you've got to get it right. And it, it, there's a demand on the, the team, particularly in the blend of it. You have to follow these things religiously. It's really important they don't overcook. And um, some of them are capable of overcooking, like the chinkapins are. You have to be monitoring these very, very closely. Mizanara, 
very, very difficult to follow. You, you have to follow them religiously. Um, so we, we knew what we wanted to do with the story. Um, it was starting right at the bottom of the tree. We were patient. Um, we didn't want to bring anything to the market too soon. Um, we inherited a good team here. Good people in this area are fantastic workers. You know, if they can, if if something goes wrong and they can't give you a permit solution, they'll give you a temporary one until somebody can give you a permit. The workforce up here is terrific. Yeah. Work ethic is 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 excellent. Um, but the last five six years have been terrific in the market, incidentally, and we we have to recognise that there is out there in terms of single malt huge enthusiasm and a, a, a really growing and knowledgeable uh, consumer base. Um, so you can't, uh, you need, <laughs> if you don't hit your target, these people will let you know. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's amazing what you've, you've created here, you know, going on to, to Glen Allocate, which you've just done amazingly well, because I was about to do that and you did that perfectly there. So thank you for the, the, the segue there, Billy. Um, but I mean, not, not blowing smoke up your arse here, but I love this distillery. I love what you're doing here. This is the closest distillery to my house with a visitor centre. So I bring a lot of clients here. They always enjoy the experience that, that they get. You know, your staff are fantastic. They're so welcoming. Liquid is, is beautiful. I'm, but I'm, I, you touched on it a little bit there. I'm interested to know, after the sale of the other three distilleries, right? Everyone thought you were just going to disappear on a desert island and sit about scratching yourself. But you came here and bought here. Was, was it just something that you were you're restless? Was there unfinished business? Is that why Glen Elke happened for you? I think there was uh, unfinished business. But there's also, you, listen, you need to wake up in the morning with a purpose. Right. You know, sitting on a Caribbean island uh, is not a purpose. <laughs> um, and Sounds all right to me, though. Well, it might be okay for a couple of weeks. But, you know... Um, <laughs> There was unfinished business. Um, this is my life, you know. This, not being part of it would have created quite a big uh, vacuum in, 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 in how I live my life. Um, yeah. and, and to be honest, I feel very fortunate that, uh, that the, the kind of planets actually aligned to allow me to buy Glen uh, I mean, it, it could have been that, hey, that's it, you know, the game's over, there is nothing available. And my suspicion is to, if it happened today, it would be very difficult to acquire yeah. a mature distillery that had been kind of working away under the radar. And that, that's our kind of distillery, something that we can take from a, virtually a standing start and, and, and just be clever or creative. That's amazing. Talk about right place, right time, right? Yes. I mean, yeah, for sure. Everything happens for a reason. So let's go back to that. You, you purchased this from, from Shivas, and then I'm assuming you had thousands of casks to go through and look at. How does that happen? Do you look at the, the, the kind of in inventory and go, right, that one looks interesting, I'm going to jump on that first, or just run into the warehouse and go, right, let's attack this warehouse? No, I think we would look at, we would, look at, we would have a look at the inventory in terms of the, the wood history. Yeah. Um, and it's not always the case that uh, you want to, to have the richest wood, because... There's things you can do with wood that has uh, been, let's say, less than active with the spirit. There's other things you can do later in its uh, its development. Um, but essentially, we would look at we looked at the, the history of the wood, and we chose on the basis of uh, this is in our head. We're saying look, we need this. We certainly need this style of wood, which would be fresh American barrels. We need as many sherry casks as we can possibly get. 
Um, and then we'll look at um, what, what else is interesting there. Well, in truth, um, this facility was very conventional in terms of how it matured its whisky uh, originally. Um, we've kind of turned it on its head now, and it's, uh, we're giving it the chance to, how are you going to behave in this cask? Let's see. And we'll follow it, and uh, we will understand. It will tell us a story of you know, Scottish Virgin, be careful, maybe two years, two and a half years. Um, and if you don't use it then, let it go for another three, four, five years. Then it will move into another phase of how it is developing the flavour profile. And it's the strength it's dropping the, I don't know if you're a chemist or you understand, but I think there's a thing called the solution characteristic. So if you put whiskey into a cask at 60% alcohol, then it will start extracting soluble characteristic from the wood that dissolves in alcohol at that strength. As the strength goes down, you're, you're then seeking to take into solution um, uh, product products, uh, extractable products that dissolve in lower strength alcohol but don't dissolve in higher strength alcohol. So you can work away at uh, being as creative as you can be and get to understand just how these casks are behaving in alcohol at this or whiskey at this strength. And as the strength falls, what other characteristics are coming into play? Um, and we've spent so many years, you know, just playing with this game, you know, uh, looking at how the, the whiskey behaves in, in different styles of wood, how different whiskies in the previous, how they behaved. And we've learned a lot from that, and we've taken the good stuff and tried to implement it here. That's fascinating. And... Let's let's chat about the, the distillery characteristic of Glenallochy. Um How would you describe this to, to people listening? And I, I know you've changed. You're, you're playing about with this a little bit now. You've lengthened the fermentation time. So how is it going to look in the future when the actual Billy Walker Glenallochy come comes out? Look, when, when we this is a big distillery, it can produce. Uh, um, it is all the characteristics to produce four point four point two million liters of alcohol. We have the water to do it. Uh, we have all the licenses to do it. We've got the discharge licenses to do it. But our immediate instinct was to say, no, let's operate this uh, distillery not on a conventional fermentation time, which would be somewhere between 52, 56 hours. Let's go for long fermentation. Now, what does that bring to the party? Well, there are, there are immediate benefits like the fermentation goes to full term so that you have a very benign wash going to the wash still. So it's very unlikely you're going to get uh, excessive bubbling. So you don't get any solids into the into the neck. So you don't get any bad burning uh, and giving you giving you off flavours that can happen. That was the first thing we wanted to do. The second thing was we were convinced, and we remain convinced, that after the first stage of the fermentation process finishes, and we allow it to rest for up to 160 hours now, there is some natural process happen that extend the flavour profile in the wash. And that's what we're looking to, to capture in this whole kind of uh, operational mode. Do you think there's going to be a big difference when, when you look at that within the casks, or have you seen that already? Um, yeah, we think there's going to be a difference. Is it going to be... A big difference. I'm not sure. Okay. We're not we're not there yet. Yeah. Um, but we are at the point where you know late 2017 Phil 
is 100% our experience. Um, and we will focus as we get nearer to, let's say, 2025, we will do, we'll focus a lot more on where do we think we are against historically, where we presumed we would be. Um, but the, following the cast development at the moment, there is no disappointment. Brilliant. Well, back in 2021, your 10-year-old, I think it was the Batch 4, won the prestigious award for Best Single Malt uh, Whiskey in the World with the Whiskey Awards. Congratulations on that, by the way. That was amazing to see. Um, I know this made a lot of whiskey drinkers kind of take notice as to what you're doing here. Did you, I take it you, you had a huge impact or there was a huge impact on what you were doing when that happened? Yes, I think that's true. Um, but it wasn't a surprise to us um, that it was... It was well respected. Whether it was, it's nice to call the number one, but you know, it's a very, it was a very, very good release, and they all have been. Um, we personally think they're getting better, but um, you know, other people might think uh, you know, personal taste is quite important. But we think the, the we think that the ten year old has each one has improved from number four. That would be our take on that. But you know what. It's not just a ten. The twelve-year-old is fantastic. It's a great brand. It's a great. Uh, it's a great drink. Fifteen-year-old is good doing well. The eighteen-year-old, which will be a bigger release as we go forward, um, that will definitely not disappoint. And then there's the kind of high-end stuff, the twenty-one, the twenty-five, the thirty, which we will hopefully continue to keep some back to release it uh, on a kind of ad hoc basis right. when we think it is absolute premium, premium quality. One of my mantras that I kind of live by, right, is um, start with the end in sight. Uh, you know, you've been an incredible whiskey maker and an astute businessman. I, I'm assuming you kind of have the same thinking with Glenallachy. So what's the end goal here? And, and how has that changed sort of since you've bought the distillery? Is there, there must have been sort of some shifts as to, to what you thought you wanted to do and then you've gone in another way a little bit or has it always just been laser focused? I don't think I'm clever enough to be laser focused. <laughs> in, tr in truth, it has always been to make the opportunity be the best it can be. And I have to say that this distillery is, when we bought it, and, and indeed, I'm sure to most of the audience outside, uh, it was a relatively unknown distillery. Um, but it's been absolutely spankingly good for us. And this is going to be in the family for a long time, this distillery. There is no hurry to, uh, to allow this to change ownership. I, mean, we, I don't want, I'm hopeful that Alistair will um, become part of the team at some point um, um, and we'll make sure that uh, it stays in the family for um, a number of generations, hopefully. Fantastic. That's great to hear that. Um, I recently bought your Scottish Oak eight-year-old which you touched on already. So I want to I delve into this a little bit more. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to be sitting here with the dram of it, as are you, so um, we can have a little nose of this. But can you tell us a little bit more about use of Scottish oak? Because I know it's a, it's a bit of a rarity and it's, it's great to see you experimenting with this. And if there's any more plans to do anything like this? Let's answer the last question first. Yes, there are plans to continue with uh, Indeed, it's, uh, it's uh, populating... A number of years already in 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 our inventory. Look, one of the reasons um, we're fascinated by Scottish Virgin Oak because we knew that it wouldn't disappoint. But 
The Coopers are uncomfortable working with it. It's uh, you don't get a lot of staves out out of the out of the tree. It's got a lot of knots. They they, they don't enjoy that, and it's expensive. Um, but that has never been it's never been a barrier to us doing things. You know, these casts will cost maybe fourteen hundred pounds per barrel, um, and it is a lot of money. And eventually, that will be part of the, the pricing out to the marketplace. But the delivery from the Scottish Virgin Oak is absolutely brilliant. I, I, as I have to say, is the delivery from most Virgin Oak casks. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow it to be. I wouldn't encourage it to be in the cask too long. You know, two and a half three years is probably a good time. Um, we currently are operating the, the Scottish Virgin Oak on a, on a medium toast, medium char. We are tempted to look at heavy char. And um, we will look at heavy char. And what that will probably do is probably give a greater degree of caramelisation. Um, so you might get more treacle notes, uh, more butterscotch notes, more toffee notes. Um, but it also will allow the, uh, the whiskey to more quickly penetrate into the woods and maybe, just maybe, give a quicker um, ex extract. Mm -hmm. Now, this is amazing. I mean, this is the, even though I bought a bottle, this is the first time I've nosed this, and it's just so fruity on the yeah. nose. I mean, can you, can you tell everyone what, what you get when you well, nose this, Billy? I mean, I'm sure on the nose. My, my first impression, is, as always with uh, the original cast of Scotch, I'm getting butterscotch vanilla, yeah. orchard fruit, and I always get a hint of uh, orange peel and maybe cinnamon. And there is... There is good chemistry behind uh, understanding why these would be present. It's incredibly smooth on the palate. The ABV on this is, is it up in the 50s? I can't remember. I think it is. This one is, it'll be up at 50s. 50. 48 to 50. I'm not sure what the last bottling was. I'm excited to open my bottle now. That is absolutely stunning. It's, it's really interesting. I know Fetter Kern are doing a little bit with Scottish Oak as well, but it's great to see you guys. Uh, Fetter Kern are, and I, I have to say, uh, a big kind of... Uh, Allowed to White Mackay. I think White Mackay did it uh, some years ago as well. Um, but they are expensive. Um, and uh, again, as I say, you have to monitor them. All cask, you have to monitor closely. But Virgin Old Cask is it's got powerful delivery. That's why we use mm -hmm. them. That's beautiful. So, I mean, talk, keeping on the on the subject of oak and, and, and what you can use now, you know, with the relaxation laws with the SWA, um, did you run out and buy a load of mezcal casts? Are you excited about this relaxation, or do you just think it's a it's a bit of a, a bit of a novelty? Look, we we were comfortable to operate within the framework of uh, the license that existed uh, in the last uh, historically. Um, are we tempted to use tequila casks? No, we're not. We, we're not rushing to use tequila casks. We will have a look. Um, we're more interested in some of the fortified wine casks. I'll let you have a look at uh, some pilots we're doing before we bottle in, in, in a couple of months. There's some wonderful casks out there. Um, and one of the interesting things about um, fortified wine casks, or indeed wine casks in general, is that uh, A, they have not been charred, and B, they have only been presented with alcohol somewhere between 15 and 22, 25%, a lot left in the wood. 
You know, they haven't had, they haven't been presented with alcohol between 55 and 60%. So it's a very interesting journey for, um, for whiskey and some of these uh, unique wine or fortified wine casks. The ones we're working on at the moment are um, Ruby Port, Moscatel and um, Marsala. They give wonderful delivery. But you maybe have to be patient and give them longer than they would, maybe four or five years. Um, or looking at champagne, Sauternes and casks. We know the Sauternes and the champagne casks are fantastic. They, but again, you have to be patient yeah. and give them a, a decent amount of time um, uh, interacting uh, with the wood. Um, so look, there's a lot, there's a lot of interesting things going on, um, and it's all about being creative. Uh, you don't need to follow the pack. Um, so look, sometimes the pack's right, um, but um, you know we're looking. We've looked at, uh, for example, going back to Virgin Oak, we've looked at Spanish. We've looked at Chincapin, which is a very interesting. Uh, American oak wood in the Missouri and in the northeast of America, mm-hmm. uh, Ozark region. Um, it gives you, well, you get all of these exceptional vanilla, butterscotch, uh, co- co- coffee, toffee, um, uh, treacly notes. This also gives you kind of licorice fennel note. Um, and again, you have to manage these very, very sensitively because you can overcook these. Um, mm. But we've looked at Russian oak. Um, we're doing a lot of work in Mizunara. Very expensive cast. <laughs> and which is one of them sitting you back right three, now? 3,200. Jeez. But, but um, the, the expectation in delivery is high. Um, mm. Again, it's cast that you have to monitor very, very, very closely so that you don't overcook in the first phase. Um, but there is an audience out there that have such an appetite for these interesting woods. We looked at Russian oak. We thought if we if we could uh, get some Russian oak from the same latitude, eastern seaboard of Russia, same latitude as uh, Hokkaido, we might be win and with a chance here of getting something similar to Mizunara. It's not true, <laughs> <laughs> but what is interesting? We're looking at Mongolian oak just now, and that might be true. Yeah. Mongolian oak may have similar flavour characteristics, and indeed genus style. Um, to um, Mizunara oak. Um, so we're, we're following these at the moment. We're, we're also into Hungarian, Ukrainian, um, French. Now, look, there's an interesting world out there. And uh, while it looks, looks, may sound like a scattergun approach, it's not. Uh, all of these different genuses deliver a different style, and a different flavour profile. Um, and we think there's an audience out there they want to connect with us. Hundred percent, there is, and I think that must be the the interesting part of it for you. Is now you can do whatever you want to do, whatever I want to do. Yeah, yeah. There's no no uh, handcuffs. There's no handcuffs, no breaks. Um, and I think there's a lot of things coming through that we as a team will be more than proud of. That's fascinating. That's you know we've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but there's so many moving parts right now within the Scotch whiskey world. And we report on these a lot within the podcast. What do you What do you think are some of the best things that are happening right now in the Scotch whisky industry? I think the industry has has read the room well, um, and the market has, as a collective, and you have to say that um, 
the, the big four have been terrific safe hands for the industry and they've done they've done a terrific job in uh, encircling the globe um, and making Scotch whisky the international uh, drink of choice uh, and what a, what a deal that's been but mm -hmm. in the in the footprint that we occupy um, the how they have stimulated the consumer is fantastic. And people, certainly the informed consumer and people who want to become informed, um, they want to spread their wings. They, they want to get involved in not just the mainstream brands, um, that's a big footprint, but they want to get into the boutique areas where I think I can say comfortably that it's an area that we're pretty strong in. We're comfortably... I think we know what we're doing and that is an audience that uh, allows us to be with the kind of um, private independent retailers, private independent importer distributors, no interest in multiple retailers. It's not where we can grow a brand. We can maybe sell some cases through these guys, but the, the kind of the kind of audience that we, we, we are connecting with are a challenging, curious, inquisitive audience, but very informed and uh, they are prepared to kind of open their eyes and be part of the whole experience. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So that's the positive aspect of it. What about some of the worst things that are going on right now? I tend to ignore these because, uh, and maybe that's uh, selfishly, because it really doesn't affect our strategy. We, you know, we, we keep our head down. I mean, the things that are bad are kind of regulatory things like what the uh, the UK government did, did in terms of uh, the raising the tanks in August. Mm -hmm. It's not so much the damage it does to the UK, and it does do damage to the UK. It takes people, it, you know, it might take people out of a particular category. They, they can't buy up to the next category. But it sends a message to countries like India and China and whoever else is listening that, look, if these guys can put tanks up, why don't we? Let's make life as difficult as possible for these guys entering our markets. Um, it's not a good show. And I don't think, uh, I don't think they have read the room properly. And, and that's no great surprise from politicians. <laughs> and I don't think this lot in Hollywood ever read the room properly. You know, yeah. some of the things that they're coming with, this, this recycle scheme is for glass. And we, our consideration is primarily glass. Look, the local authorities in Scotland have been very successful at recycling glass. Why are they changing things? You know, why are they making things? Well, here are one of the examples. I don't know if the audience out there actually knows what's happening, but we have to tell. We so we signed up. Of course, we signed up. We we're not going to we're not going to disappoint uh, the people who want to buy our products in Scotland. But so we have to tell in advance the Scottish government what we anticipate to sell in Scotland, and uh, that allows us then say let's say it's ten thousand bottles. So we invoice ten thousand bottles. Scottish customers, there's a line on the invoice that says that's 20 pence per bottle for the, the fee. Mm -hmm. um, you don't charge VAT in that. These bottles will then be returned and against the barcode, this organisation will be able to identify how many of our bottles have been returned. Now, the bottles that have not been returned, uh, we will have to then go back and charge VAT in these bottles. So that, that's so, not a good thing for me. Um, and yeah. I don't think, I mean, I, I've spoken with our local MSPs who are quite supportive. 
some of the things they were trying to do in terms of alcohol advertising, I think, were disappointing. So hopefully that will be um, pared back and it will be a sensible approach to to yeah. whatever changes, changes uh, they make. But the other thing, going back to the recycling, you know, somebody pays 50, pay 50 pounds for a bottle of whiskey, are they going to rush back to get 20 pence back? Yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's I, I can see the point in it, but I don't see the point in it with glass, and I don't see the point in Scotland rushing into this before no. the rest of the UK. But look, I'm not condemning anybody. We are who we are. Uh, it's, I would prefer we weren't doing this. Mm -hmm. um, I'd prefer that uh, the duty was not going up in August, um, but uh, we are not influencers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you are a little bit, Billy, so um, yeah. <laughs> I disagree with that. What I'm going to end with here is, and this has been absolutely amazing chatting with you, but I always like to kind of get away a little bit from the whiskey chat. So this is called the quick fire round. Okay. Maybe whiskey related, maybe not. So favorite car? Right now it's a Discovery. Okay. No, sorry. I don't like that one anymore. It's the Land Cruiser. Land Cruiser. Best bit of advice for anyone looking to get into the whiskey industry? Do it. It's a fantastic industry. Best bit of advice for anyone looking to open a distillery? Well, that's a more difficult one. Um, but be patient and uh, tailor your plan to the monies that you have available, both in terms of private money and banking money. Favourite thing for you to do when you're not making whiskey? I watch football. Any team? Rangers. There you go. Uh, a celebrity that you'd want to share a Glenallachy with, dead or alive? He's not, a, he's not a celebrity to most people because he's a very famous and wonderfully important scientist called Professor Linus Powling. And what did he do? He has Nobel Prizes, certainly in chemistry and... Uh, and maybe even physics, but he was, he was a genius scientist, a man before his time. Um, in fact, I'll tell you, I, I was telling the team this morning, very, in my early days at Hiram Walker, uh, we had a, a visit from the press and North End football team who was managed by Bob, Bobby Charlton, and um, I was asked to host the team and Mr. Charlton around the distillery and the bottling plant. And everybody knew him, everybody knew Bobby Charlton, who was a charming um, and very, very well-mannered uh, uh, gentleman. The next week, uh, Professor Powling um, was over discussing with uh, one of the Glasgow University surgeons um, about the use of ascorbic acid in the treatment of cancer, which never quite got off the ground, but it, it had some merit at the time. And... Uh, I was asked to show him around the distillery, not one person recognised him. No way. <laughs> and that's modern life. Even then it was life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're allowed to drink one dram of Glenallachy for the rest of your life. What's it going to be? I would go with a 15-year-old. Okay. Uh, best whiskey outside of Scotland that you've tried? Listen, I did some work with uh, Cooley and I thought uh, I kind of was uh, instrumental in creating... Uh, Connemara. I go with Connemara. Dream holiday? Not a great holiday person. Um, but if I had to go somewhere, I'd go to Cape Town. Favourite person in the whiskey industry? Oh, it's a tough one, Billy. That is quite a difficult one because there are some great uh, guys. But, you know, I would be proud to con 
I, I am proud to consider Richard Patterson a friend, uh, Mike Kidd as a friend, uh, Andrew Simington as a friend, and David Stewart, wonderful blender. Um, look, there's a lot of good guys in this industry. There are too many to name. But these guys are pretty, pretty well up, up the league. That's a, that's a good posse right there, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, Billy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for the dram as well. That's uh, amazing to taste that. Thank you.